Welcome to Raising Our Voices. This month we are bringing you part one of Q&A we ran on Is South Africa on the Map? Panel members are Peter Waters from, from Raising Our Voices, Jen Hartgrave from Women Have Disability Victoria, Peter Ferguson from Brain Injury Matters, Chloe Stewart from I Can Network, Liz Cairns from the NDIA, Sue Smith from Saru, Trisha Maloney, who is a comedian. Enjoy. Peter Waters is one of the Raising Our Voices team members, and he's going to kick us off. Over to you, Peter. Right. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, welcome to our inaugural Q&A, Creating an Answer. I'm going to pull on facilitator for today and hopefully you can understand what I say. If you can't, well, put your hand up and we will do something about it. Um, yeah. Okay, I'm with the program and my interview a great panel. Jim for women with disabilities and I better Jim with all women who are being and by so welcome Jim. Jane one of my five advocates, Peter Ferguson, Peter Ferguson, of the only organisation for brain injuries in Victoria, not Australia, brain injuries now. Peter, welcome. College Governor, Colin is brand new to me and she's never done it before. She is from the ICANN Network. Now, I don't know much about ICANN Network, but I believe it's people have supported people with all to So, welcome, Colin. The panel keep on getting better. Um, to my right, we have Liz Cairn. Liz is the managing director of NDIA, National Disability Insurance Agency. Welcome, Liz, and she's by. Can you buy right here in Geelong? So welcome to our panel. 
Self-efficacy on the map. In what way is it on the map? And if not, why not? And how does it get on the map? Okay. Um, what we do if you don't nominate a person to I will nominate that person for you. So I mean, I have a way to start for you. Well, it's an interesting question, isn't it? In this room, in Victoria, it probably is on the map, but I'm thinking out broader, even within the disability sector, it's pretty unknown and not on the map. And that's with Victoria being the strongest um, state for self-advocacy. I would say it's almost invisible on the map in Northern Territory, Queensland. Um, Western Australia has one or two groups that I know of. So depends who you ask um, and why not? And Tasmania has a strong self-advocacy. So they're a bit more on the map. Why not? I think it's because it's not really funded, so that makes it hard to get the big voice out there and at the table. I think it's because self-advocacy groups, um, the volunteers work so hard on the issues that are important to them, on, on supporting each other, on doing the training, that they've not really got the time or the money to, to, to raise their profile. Um, they're very known in some of the communities they work in, but not broader. Um, and how's it get on the map? Well, I guess you'd call me a dreamer. Is that John Lennon? Oh, that's a bit embarrassing. Anyway, um, 
it would be lovely to have, an, as in the 80s, a national self-advocacy peak organisation that used to be People First Australia. It would be lovely to have sustainable funded groups all over Australia and a strong coming together of those groups for a national voice. Um, so getting on the map, I think, will take a bit of work and requires a bigger vision and money to go with making that vision happen. Um, so do you reckon everybody we have development of advocacy into a movement that we can be proud of? I think self-advocacy goes through what I was saying this morning, boom and bust cycles. So in the 80s, I think, without a doubt, it was a strong self-advocacy movement right across Australia. But then it... Um, um, with loss of funding, it fades away. But I think it's it's on the rise. I think the self-advocacy movement, hopefully, is is starting to try and rebuild and go back to that national national focus. Um, I I agree. Self-advocacy is. It's mostly more visible and on the map in Victoria than in the other states. But perhaps this is greatest. Let's, let's perhaps you should be in the IA should think about funding a national self-advocacy group by <laughs> the boom and bust happily we're in a boom period now and we're booming and booming and booming. <laughs> and no more busts. <laughs> no. <laughs> no more busts. Have you got anything down one of the things I was thinking about when I saw this question was we've had a very strong grassroots development in Victoria across all sectors. So self-advocacy has grown from um, people desiring to have a say about their own lives, be able to talk for themselves instead of having somebody else talk through for them. And I think one of the ways we strengthen our voices is to ensure that other people know that it is our voices that need to be heard and not through the filter of others. And I think there's some perhaps some capacity building work for families that need to be done. Um, whenever I speak publicly, the, the parents always come up and say, oh, well, it's no point asking my son or daughter what they want, they won't know. When I talk to their son and daughter, they're quite clear about what they want and need. So we have to just perhaps reshape it a bit, yeah. You are listening to Raising Our Voices on 3CR. This is our summer show on Q&A, Is Self-Advocacy on the Map? Okay, thank you. Um, by the way, as I said, if anyone got any comments, put, put, put your hand up.
Self-advocacy groups, more self-advocacy groups, it's a good idea. Self-advocacy groups are a good idea and, rep and, and very good. Um, I'll ask a question. The fact that what about other people out in the community? Are you going to try to educate them too? Because there's still a lot of people in the community that do not understand the disabled and they need to be educated. Are the self-advocacy groups going to work out on different forums and also that the fact that we have a, have a recognition of uh, getting the people out in the community to understand the disabled? Is, it, is that a possibility? Um, yeah, um, who wants to do that? I'll take that if you like. And certainly that's one of the things about the National Disability Strategy is the National Disability Strategy is one part of that. So that that is about making sure that everything is included within the mainstream or the rest of the community, if you like. But it's our responsibility too. So each of us need to be able to inform the rest of the community, no, I want, this is about me, I have to speak up about me. So it's very important that, yes, we continue to do that as a group and we continue to do that individually and not wait for somebody else to do it. Uh, now, friend, you could any more comment on that? Uh, 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 OK, I've got, uh, I've got one comment regarding the... Uh, yeah, yeah educating, educating people, especially young people, in terms of the ICANN network. About, uh, about people with disabilities. One strategy we're taking is we've been going and mentoring the students at, at primary schools and high schools. Well, mainly we've just been taking in the uh, 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 some of the students on the spectrum, like a small group of them, and just, yeah, and just yeah, taking them through activities regarding social skills. But what's great about that is that it is that it starts to educate these kids' peers about it too because the, because the kids come out of the session and they, talk, and they talk about it and what they've learned and also because they often become more confident through it and they start to make wider, and they start to make wider thick, uh, networks. Uh, the networks around those kids will start to be, will, will start to be educated about, this, about certain disabilities too. So that is one strategy we're taking. Thank you, Chloe. Thank you very much. Um, now I'm going to move on to the next question. Chloe from Melanie. Melanie Moore. For, for Evan. Evan. So my name's Melanie. I'm, I'm reading out a question from one of our board members at Leadership Plus. I work at Leadership Plus. We're an advocacy service for people with disability and we prioritise people with an acquired brain injury. I'm really pleased to see Brain Injury Matters here and United Brains here today. The question is, how do we reveal rather than conceal the extraordinary benefits of what self-advocacy groups do for individuals their families, their clinical and support workers, 
and their wider community. Okay. Would anyone want to have a go at that? Liz? Thank you. Um, I think one of the really important things as the scheme moves towards understanding more about what works is for self-advocacy groups to start thinking about how the information about outcomes of self-advocacy can be collected. So at the moment, most of the funding is around it's small grant funding around activities. Um, probably really, really important to start looking at some of the overseas models, particularly out of the UK, where there's a good body of evidence already around the importance of self-advocacy as a contributor to the achievements of improved outcomes. And that's what I would be encouraging self-advocacy groups to do. That's clearly, outcomes is clearly the way of the future right across human services. And I think this is, um, this is something that self-advocacy groups would, would, would be well served to do. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have time and probably don't have the resources, but there's a good body of evidence in the UK. And if I was involved in self-advocacy, that's where I'd start. It's a combination of, um, you know, if, if you're working with, with an individual or with, with some groups of people, it's collecting, it's collecting from, the, um, from the first part of that engagement where that individual wants to be and then evaluating the progress and the achievement of that um, is what I would suggest. Um, would, be, would be a good start. Um, the scheme is interested in outcomes, but it's also interested in dollars, and that's kind of the balanced scorecard, and you've got to keep an eye on both. So I think the other thing that self-advocacy could start to collect, and the scheme will be doing that anyway for um, all funded supports, is um, does it make a change to um, safeguarding, you know, the informal safeguarding, if Safeguarding will never work if it's about paid supports. It will work if it's about informal, strong, informal networks. And does it, does it maximise someone's independence? And is, the, is that um, sustainable over time? They're the sorts of things that self-advocacy groups probably need to start thinking about. We've got a load of people hand up. Uh, right, behind, right behind you, boy. Yeah, man. My name's Jane Hopkins. I work for Vision Australia. Um, I can see that self-advocacy um, needs to be measured and I can see that we've got some fantastic role models in self-advocacy. But I work with young children and my role, as I see it at the moment, is partly to teach children how to self-advocate from a very early age. And so I guess I'm wondering if we break down self-advocacy into its component parts, what do we see those as? What should I be teaching apart from providing great role models? So that was um, what should we be teaching kids as role yeah. models? Yeah. Um, you know, there's a um, Scope does a one in four poll which looks at the um, community attitudes to people with disabilities, and so many people with disabilities in that poll say that they feel really isolated and discriminated against. And I remember too a Stella Young article where she wrote about a friend of hers who um, who had a disability, and he thought when he grew up he would either die or lose his disability because when he looked at TV and he looked around on the streets, he just didn't see other people with disabilities. So I think 
for all people with disabilities, whether they're children or adults, having connections and role models with other people with disabilities is really critical. I was hungry all back to education um, about me and disabilities and also go back to how I cope with disability too. Because thank you so much for that comment. I think uh, got if I can just make um, another comment on that one, can I suggest that young children um, select their parents wisely? <laughs> because um, I grew up in the era where people with disabilities or children with disabilities were supposed to be seen and not heard, that children with disabilities were supposed to be in segregated schools and in segregated um, employment. And my parents said, no, not my daughter. And I was probably pushed more than the rest of my family. I have six sisters and three brothers. But the really, I mean, and we, we can see it now. So the people of my generation um, were segregated and weren't taught to talk about their own rights. Whereas the younger people now, and I work with a lot of great young people, like Ariana, for example, they know what they want, they know what they need, and they're not scared to say so. So my advice would be to teach children that they have rights too. That's the, that's the primary part of it. Exactly. And, yeah, Regarding teaching children about self-advocacy? Well, because it's children, I don't know how old these ones are, but I've been working with some myself. And yeah, you've really got to break things down easily for them sometimes. Like, I don't know, the way I would break it down is first you've got to teach them about acceptance. They've got to, they've got to accept what difference, condition or disability they have and hopefully encourage others to accept it. And then they've got, and then they've got to learn something about, about pride. Like, you know, be proud of what you have. It can be a part of who you are. And they've got to learn to see it in a positive light because, you know, all the clinical diagnoses, they're always deficit-based models most of the time. But there are a lot of good things that come out of it too. And so so I guess you can teach teach the kids, like, you know, what are the good things about their specific condition? What does it, what, what does it allow them to be able to do that maybe other people can't? And... And get you coming. Um, okay, if we know more about what or why are we having a kind of woman to what we need Hi, Ariane from Raising Our Voices and the Organising Committee of the Q&A. We have a couple of questions that would like to ask the panel. I'm going to ask the first two. And the first question I would like to direct to Peter Ferguson and Trisha Maloney. Um, The first question is, how will the NDIS make a difference to self-advocacy in both of your opinions? Well, we are in the NDIS face 
said they have got ignore us now and the NDIA as this case said it it doesn't just it just isn't I think the whole of disability, the a disability strategy, but the NDIA has a pretty powerful part of it and for advocacy, hopefully they know we are around and they'll support us and listen to us and we won't be backwards in saying what we want. And Trish? Well, I, I'm hoping that it really will make a big difference because this is based around individuals, right? So there's a capacity building component within that for self-advocacy. So I think that as there's as it develops and people are then saying, I actually want to speak for myself, then the NDIS has the obligation to do that, to support people to do that. So I actually am quite hopeful about that. And I think the more people who speak out, the better it'll be for all of us. I also have another question. I might just ask Pauline if she can come and help me read this question because my sight's not very good today. With change comes... Anxiety, is that it? When will the NDIA provide self-advocacy groups with some certainty about their future? I think that one for you, Lish. It was kind of coming my way, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you. Look, as I said, what's happening at the moment is part of the bilateral agreements, so the agreements between each state or territory government and the Commonwealth about how the scheme will roll out in those jurisdictions, is the state and territory governments are doing a mapping exercise about what they currently fund um, in advocacy and in other programs. Uh, And this goes back to the part of uh, my presentation this morning about ILC, information, linkages and capacity. So a long new word for what used to be Tier 2. So once that mapping's done, uh, it's underway now and coming, certainly in Victoria, coming very close to being being finished, then that will inform uh, the agency's approach to commissioning or contracting for ILC, and self-advocacy certainly has a big role in that. So um, I don't think anyone needs to worry about responding to a tender over Christmas. So hopefully we're not that unreasonable. I mentioned you, Pauline. I mentioned you, Pauline. Essentially, Pauline says, does that mean I have to cancel my holidays in January? Um, Hoping. But certainly you you should see the commissioning framework. There's been quite a lot of co-design around that as well. So you should see the commissioning framework uh, come out before Christmas and then the ILC uh, tenders, I I would imagine, will be early, uh, early in the year. We have a comment on by from Neil Cameron. Hi, it's Neil Cameron again from United Brains. Liz, just to add to that, as you said that Victoria has um, almost uh, completed their work on seeing how much they fund groups and advocacies throughout the state, 
when NDIA rolls out the support for groups, is it going to be uh, a similar quantity of groups throughout Australia or, or are we going to concentrate on state-by-state type basis as it, as it exists now and try and expand on that? I didn't hear the last part of that. Could you just maybe repeat that? Uh, the question really is, uh, when the NDIA rolls out their support for groups um, in the future, is it going to be on a national basis per capita or is it going to be on a, on a sort of group basis that we have now in Victoria, New South Wales and Queensland, etc.? Um, I probably can't answer that because it does depend on what we do with the information from state governments and how we turn that into a commissioning strategy. I think it's fair to say... Um, probably for the through until the scheme gets to full scheme in about 2019, there will be some differences um, based on what already exists in states and territories, I think. Um, and then I think it's reasonable that it will start to look a little bit more consistent across the country. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Thank you for being involved. May you be safe. May you be happy. See you again. Thank you to our beautiful panel. Thank you for being involved. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Raising Our Voices. Thanks to Saro and all the panel members and everyone who came to our Q&A. You can listen to part two on Wednesday the 10th of February at 6pm. Coming up next is Tamil Voices.